You were saying? Oh, we're starting over. Okay. <laughs> Just starting over. Okay. One day we should release all of these uh, false starts and kid interruptions. And people <laughs> will understand how difficult this actually is. We make it sound so easy. That's because we're professionals. <laughs> Are you ready for round three? I'm ready. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 92, covering Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson, chapter 62 through 67 of Words of Radiance. No. <laughs> no, I'm... I'm... I'm calling that one. Next time, we'll be reading chapters 68 through 71 of Words. Time of death, 1044 p.m. (laughs) on that bit right there. Words of Radiance. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? Our spoiler policy is that we will not spoil anything past chapter 67 of Words of Radiance, because although Liz has read everything in the Cosmere twice, I have not read any of these books. That's right. So we want to keep Chad unspoiled for his for his sake and for ours. We enjoy his predictions at the end of these episodes. So don't spoil it for him. Don't tell me nothing. Keep me in the dark. So you guys might not realize this, but this is an extra gnarly episode of the Duke and Duchess podcast. We have two bloody <laughs> teeth sitting here. Yeah. yeah Our children we're... have been losing teeth left and right. And, and we've had two teeth brought to us in the course of Mid trying podcast. to retar- record this podcast. So a couple of bloody teeth sitting around. Doesn't get much more metal than that. No, I mean, it's it's a very metal episode. That's for sure. So what did you think of this section of chapters? I thought it was an okay section of chapters. There were some things I liked. I was glad to see a few things move forward. I like the ending of the of this section. And then there's some other just Brandon Sanderson goofiness. That kind of goofiness you just have to be able to go with? I guess. Let me ask you this, though. Did you start to understand... Why I like Adolin as a character. Yeah, I mean, I think so. That wasn't very enthusiastic. <laughs> no, I, I don't have a problem with Adolin. Adolin's the least of my concerns. It's the least of your concerns. Well, that's we're not off to a very auspicious start. <laughs> <laughs> These books are so long. And my experience so far is that the couple of Brandon Sanderson books that I've read, The Way of Kings... Warbreaker, very good endings. But these books are like 1,100 pages. Just get on with it already. Like, Do you think the endings would be as good without all of the buildup, though? Yeah. 
you know, it's not even so much that. So I compare it back to Name of the Wind. Name of the Wind is the exact opposite of The Way of Kings. Name of the Wind is 800 pages. Nothing happens. Every word is a joy to read. The characters feel so real. All the characters feel so real. This is the opposite. These books, the characters are, for the most part, pretty cardboard. But the plots are really cool, and the world building's really cool. But uh, but I'm not falling in love with these characters, and some of them are some of them are okay, mm-hmm. some of them are enjoyable. But there's also so many of them that are, I mean, they're cartoonish. Well, we've certainly had some discussion about particularly the the villains in this book being especially lacking in depth. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's something that a lot of our listeners on the social media pages have talked about, feeling frustrated with. Would you say that you feel the 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 villains in particular or you still feel that some of the main characters are lacking in depth? Uh, no, I think at this point I would say it's mostly the villains. And what I will say is that I understand that this is a hugely epic novel, or I'm sorry, series of novels, series, and there are probably characters who have not really been fully fleshed out yet, so I'm willing to kind of go with it and give it a chance to see. He's earned enough of my respect for me to continue reading the books, which, you know, given the amount of time we've been reading these books, to me says something, because... I could certainly a lot. There's several other books I would have given up on. Well, that's something anyway. I, I know it's not a ringing we've, endorsement. We've got you for another 1,100 pages at least. Yeah, this. I'm not coming out of the Maybe gates. Maybe 1,500. Yeah, I mean, well, let's just see how this one ends. All right, before I make any commitments. This is like uh, going through the. Um... <laughs> the hot food bar at our, our college uh, food mess hall. Each station looks less and less appetizing, <laughs> but you're just going to go all the way through and see if there's anything good at the end. I, I lived off campus. That was some bad food. Okay, so you didn't experience <laughs> oh, that. Oh, I experienced it once or twice. Okay. But all right. I mean, hairnets baked into the pizza kind of bad. It was historically bad. It was historically bad. It was historically bad, yes. On a scale of zero to a hairnet baked in your pizza, how <laughs> bad is words of radiance? Uh, I'd put it somewhere in the middle. Okay. We're going to go with that. And we're going to get into chapter 62 called The One Who Killed Promises. Kaladin gets a visit from Dalinar while he's in prison. He discovers that not only did Dalinar know what Elokar did to Moash's grandparents, but that the light-eyed lord who levied the false charges against them was none other than Roshon. Son of a what? bitch. It turns out that Dalinar was behind Roshon's exile to Hearthstone, the event that triggered the catastrophe that befell Kaladin's family. Kaladin is deeply shaken by this news and decides that Elokar is not just a bad king. He is a festering appendage that needs to be removed permanently. 
So this big revelation comes out that the thing that happened to Moash's grandparents and and the backstory there, since it's been a couple of weeks since that came out, was that Moash lived with his grandparent. They raised him. They were uh, a minor light-eyed lord was competing with them for business and he had false charges raised against them and Elokar, rather than kind of put his foot down and stop that injustice, he just put them in prison and they ended up dying there. And that's why Moash has it out for the king. You know, he's got like his vengeance boner on for him. And it turns out that his story of injustice is now tied to Kaladin's story because it's the same prick who then got exiled out to Kaladin's town who, you know, made all of this trouble for Kaladin's family. What really gets me here is the just Kaladin's still lack of awareness about any kind of taking any kind of responsibility. And in this case, it's the acknowledgement of the fact that his father did steal the ta- the city's wealth. <laughs> like, yeah. mm-hmm. the whole thing that caused Roshon to gun for him. I mean, other than, not that he would have, they would have been best friends probably if this hadn't happened, but it was the fact that Liren lied and falsified a document to get the, the wealth, the city's wealth, given to him upon the death of the old city lord. And so, you know, he he legitimately did something really unethical and Rochon being a prick certainly had something to do with it and he didn't have to react the way he did. But Kaladin has zero awareness, zero like uh, of the fact that what his father did also contributed to the things that happened to him. Yes, and that's com- kind of what what bothers you the most about Kaladin at this at this juncture. Yeah, he he is absolutely unable to take any ownership over his own behaviors, but he's completely and totally unforgiving and vengeance-minded towards everybody else. He's he's a hypocrite. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. That's what what makes Kaladin really hard to stomach at this point in his journey. I hadn't really noticed until you pointed it out. I don't remember if it was this last episode or one before. How Brandon Sanderson with Kaladin tends to fall into a telling, not showing mentality. Yeah. That he doesn't seem to fall into sometimes with other characters. And, you know, I see it right in the beginning of this chapter where he's sort of down there by himself and he says he could not conceive of a worse death. And he just talks about, I'm so sad here. He doesn't do any anything to sort of show you that grief and that anguish that he's going through or that he's driving himself crazy. No, he just tells you about it. So I think the end result of that is that when Kaladin says, this king's got to die, instead of you commiserating with him or understanding his perspective, you're just like, no, dumbass, you're an idiot. Kaladin is one of the characters that, for me at least, it's harder to feel empathy for. You know, I don't, I don't feel myself in his head, which is odd because he, you know, the things that he struggles with are certainly things I can relate to on an intellectual level. But I don't. Plus, that time you were imprisoned. And 
don't talk about that on this podcast. But I, I don't I don't feel it the way that I do when I read uh, Shalon's flashback chapters to her her childhood home. I like I, I feel that that feels like gut wrenching to me. It's just not the same with this character. No. So two thumbs down for Yeah, two thumbs down point. for Kaladin. Sorry, Kaladin. You Keep reading, though. It gets better. He stinks on ice. <laughs> and again, w- we see some of Dalinar's flaws coming up. And we have to kind of examine, was hit, did he make the right decision when he decided to not have Roshon, like completely stripped of his rank and just kind of sent off where he didn't think he'd be able to do any harm. But really, that was kind of lazy thinking on his part. This guy was an obviously just a malevolent prick. I have a harder time faulting him for that decision than I do for sort of the way he talks about it after the fact, because he says things like the Rashon incident was a mistake, but he quote cleared it up and he sent him where he could do no harm. And it's just sort of this blase approach to things. That's the first sort of chink in his moral shard plate. Right. He does say something that I really like to Kaladin, though, and it it's something that uh, a theme that comes up a couple of times in this section. And he's talking about how what's happening to Kaladin isn't fair, obviously, and trying to, you know, Kaladin's pretty salty with him and, and pretty disrespectful. And Dalinar's trying to meet him where he's at. And Kaladin says, you know, it shouldn't matter that I'm dark-eyed. Like, I, I should have the same rights as a light-eyed person. And Dalinar agrees with him, but he says, but if you want to change that, you're not going to do it by screaming like a lunatic and challenging men like Amaram to duels. You'll do it by distinguishing yourself in the position I gave you and be the kind of man that others admire, and that will change the world. And I think that's a really powerful message, and it's one of the central ones of this book and one of the things that Brandon Sanderson really wants to get across, I think, in this Alethi society and how do you change a culture from the inside and how cultures do kind of either degrade or evolve based on the actions of individuals. I highlighted the same quote and for all the same reasons, particularly on my first read through. However, on my second read through, I thought about it and I said, distinguish yourself in the role that I've given you. Kaladin jumped into a pit with six shard bearers with nothing but a stick in front of everybody of importance in the Shattered Plains. And everybody who has referenced him after the fact has pretended like he didn't even exist. So while on one hand... I agree with the sentiment. There's another part of me that says, how can Kaladin accept that when he has done nothing but distinguish himself and got absolutely zero from it outside of with Dalinar? Now, I'm going to contradict my own self here and say what Dalinar says is right. It's just incredibly hard to do and stay positive 
in the f- in the face of a society that would treat you that way. Well, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's very interesting, though, that Kaladin seems to be able to do that when things circumstantially are at their absolute worst. So when he is in the bridge cruise, slated for death, you know, in the slave wagon, when things on the outside are absolutely the worst, he seems to be able to function in that just doing the next right thing, just putting the next right foot forward and not worrying about the bigger picture, but just doing what's best for him, for his men. And that's when he really thrives. But as soon as his external circumstances improved, all of a sudden he's like these character defects of like self-pity and self-centeredness just drag him down and keep him from being the person that he needs to be. It's an interesting It's an interesting conflict. So later at the end of the chapter, Kaladin says, The kingdom would be better off without Elikar. Dalinar tried his best, but he had an enormous blind spot regarding his nephew. Huge blind spot. Pot, meat, kettle. Right. (laughs) He's got a massive blind spot when it comes to any degree of introspection to examine his own motivations and resentments and his own his own blind spots his own shortcomings well and the decision he makes in the next Kaladin point of view chapter really highlights that so I think we'll talk about that more when we get there chapter 63 is called a burning world Shalon is on a stakeout trying to catch one of the ghost bloods in action she has just enough time for a cute little span read conversation with Adolin before Pattern spots her target. They sneak up and introduce themselves to Iatil, the creepy mask lady. She was sent to follow Shalon on her next mission. Shalon convinces Iatil to just accompany her instead, and together they set off to find out what is up with the madman who just arrived in Dalinar's war camp. Shalon gains access to Talonel. And he recognizes her as one of Ishar's knights, but she is unconvinced that he is who he says he is. Unfortunately, before she has much time to ponder the mystery, Amaram shows up. Bum bum. Okay, eye roll. We got an eye roll. Oh, Shamaram. Sham. Shamaram. <laughs> you can hold 12 times your own weight in ridiculousness. <laughs> So before we get to Shamaram, we first have to uh, make note of the fact that Adolin is Shallan's prison bay. They're literally prison pen pals at this point. Yeah, right. <laughs> She's writing a man in prison. <laughs> so isn't isn't he like I talk to my father and I'm hanging out with my ardent? Yeah, but he's like so. He's also taking baths and wearing cologne. And I mean, it's... So he he had a cell in the prison. Right. And he just had everybody come to him. Pretty much. I mean, he definitely had some prison perks, for sure. But they were cold water baths. (laughs) He's like, nah, Kaladin. I was right there with you. Right there with you. You were just across the hall <laughs> in darkness, caged, squatting over a 
pail of your own human excrement. He hit his girl sketching her safe hand. Right. (laughs) Sending him nudies. Yeah. (laughs) Over span read. (laughs) Can you uh, use your right hand to draw your left hand? (laughs) Bring me my ardent (laughs) and another beer. (laughs) Summon my father. I would like to play checkers. One of my favorite, very kind of subtle comments here, though, is Shalon is talking about how Adolin keeps expecting her to be jealous and how, but for her, that just reminds her of her father and that she she just can't be that way. And she considers like whether she's supposed to or not, but then she decides that she really just doesn't even want to keep him if that's what it takes in order to have this relationship with him. And it just makes me like her more. I don't know why. Uh, we also get mentioned before we even get into the... The caper. The, the caper. Uh, that Dalinar has been... Something's been wrong with Dalinar. He's been in seclusion. or He's been feeling unwell. So then we get down to the caper, okay? And, and the central... Baba. <laughs> The central question we have to answer is Are the Ghostbloods a rubbish organization? Yes. Okay. I, I know Would there's you like been... me to take more time to think about it? No, no, no. <laughs> there's definitely been some discussion on the Facebook group page about whether the. The ghost bloods are rubbish, rubbish villains. Oh, God. So I, I definitely I agree with the set the idea that Yatel's initial creepiness definitely gets it's just gone. Oh, you know, by this like, like a she's bubble. got like this sorority sister vibe all of a sudden. And it's like this was such this character had a lot of potential for I mean, the mask is growing into her face, dude. That's so creepy. And that and then it's like they're 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 doing pinky promises by the end of this chapter. So that, you know, definitely is a a change of pace. We're going to go by the dean's office and toilet paper is. But I disagree. Shaving cream underneath of all the door handles. I I, I disagree, though, with the the idea that the ghost bloods were being foolish by sending Shallan on this mission. I think they had this new kind of intriguing uh, possible member who performed what they would consider an impossible task by sneaking into Amaram's mansion undetected by them. They were watching all the windows, all the doors. They didn't see her go in, go out. They want to figure out more about what her abilities are. So they send her on what's probably an important, but not completely crucial task to try and get into Dalinar's war camp. I wasn't aware that that was really a point of discussion. I, I knew that there's been a bunch of conversation going on, about these chapters, but I I don't read them ahead of time. So, so I'm assuming that was the the general consensus is that they were well, one or two people I think felt okay. that way. I'm just curious as whether that was your no I, I opinion as well. No, I didn't think that. No, to me it was the way that all the all the mystery, all the drama, all the venom, all the danger 
of this character was instantly destroyed in a second as soon as the two of them met. Right. And as soon as Shalon was like, what is your name? <laughs> I, I think that was probably an attempt to give Shalon more power. But it definitely did undermine the the menace of the ghost bloods. And that's something that has been building since book one when, you know, her father Stuart, Stuart turned out to be one when they you know, um, assassinated Yasna on the ship. Like, this is kind of built up as a big, bad organization. And now Shalon kind of goes in and is just having, like, a buddy caper with one of them. You know, and they have this whole, like, oh, you pretend you're crazy, and I'll, you know, I'll sneak you in. And She sticks her tongue out and wags yeah, her eyes. Yeah. And blah, blah, yeah. Blah, you know? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that they're riding in the palanquin and they're going, and I would walk 500 <laughs> miles and I would walk by, you know, <laughs> do it again. <laughs> Pass the Cheetos. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. However, I enjoy. Shalon's cleverness and how she gets into the monastery, how she gets into Dalinar's war camp without revealing her powers. Uh, for me, all of that is good stuff. It was okay. It was just kind of par for the course. So I didn't find it to be sufficient to redeem the enormous boner killer that was Iadal. You wanted her to have scary teeth? I mean, something like... She has a mask growing into her face. And then she's just completely toothless. It, it's it's the way she becomes completely, like, is immediately set on her back foot. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Shalon just starts, like, talking to her like she's a peer. And Iadal just sort of accepts it. But then later she says a couple of things that where it's like she's trying to redeem her badassery and mm-hmm. she just can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, she says to Shalon, are you the hunter or are you the quarry? Mm-hmm. And Shalon's like, um, I just do the books for Siberial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's like, all are one or the other. Oh, come up off of it. Mm-hmm. For fuck's sake. Jesus. So are you sure it's not Kaladin wearing that mask? <laughs> you can tell they're the bad guys because they're the masters of inane assertions. <laughs> and then later, Shalon says to her, oh, your master, Marais, and she says, ha, master, he is the student. I am the teacher. Watch me do nothing. <laughs> right, the student of what? And then she pretends to be crazy by wagging her mask around. I don't know what, yeah, it. I mean, I think the mask growing into her face was sufficient. <laughs> right. To get the attention. Yeah, you don't need to. But it definitely has remained the most interesting thing about her. No, and she says that, I don't believe you people walk around without a mask on your face. <laughs> right. Why do you have a mask growing into your face? 
Why don't you have a mask growing into Why your face? Why don't you, man? Why don't you? And and it makes me think that she comes from some place where that's co- more common. Yeah. But nobody here seems to be even remotely familiar with that. Not on Roshar, for sure. Oh. So she's a cosmonaut. Well, I feel like you speculated weeks ago that at least Mraze was. Oh, probably, yeah. A oh, I did. Hopper. Yeah, you yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I saw his menagerie his of shit that comes from other worlds. Right. I mean, that gave it away. Kind Tipped of. it off kind just of. a bit. A little bit, yeah. Also, like, I didn't like that. Here here was the one thing I did like about Yaddle. Like, they kept asking each other questions to feel each other out. And Shalon kept, you know, being like, oh, well, I had somebody scouting the place ahead of time. And I'm like, shut up. You don't have to tell her anything. Mm-hmm. Why would you tell this woman anything? Mm-hmm. But Yaddle never breaks. Shalon asks her questions, and she just doesn't give her shit at all. Mm-hmm which I thought at least that was interesting. And then as it goes on, Shalon starts to catch wise and Shalon stops revealing things. Mm-hmm. That part of it I thought was interesting. I was like, all right, I can see Shalon's catching on a little bit here to what she needs to do. But but I was frustrated at the beginning that Shalon was like, you know, Iata was like, how did you know I was here? And Shalon was like, oh, I had somebody scout you out, or I had somebody looking, you know, like, you don't have to answer her. You don't have to give anything away. I also think it's important to remember in this section how crucial Shalon's mission is to her to get out onto the Shattered Plains to try and find the city and the Oath Gate. And I think it's not a coincidence that she goes through this caper just after finishing the span read conversation with Adolin, where he is discussing what he's willing to do as far as getting her onto the Shatter Plains. And mm-hmm. he's saying, oh, good news. I talked to my father. You know, um, he's getting ready for his mission and he might send out a scouting party and I might take you a tiny bit outside of the war camp to look at a, at a dead, empty chrysalis. Yeah. And then right back, you know? So sh- I think she's kind of realizing that at least as things stand now, Adolin is not getting her out there to find the Oath Gate. Like, that's as far as any of the Alethi or the, or the Colleens are going to take her. More and more, it's looking like she needs the ghost bloods if she is going to get out there and find them. So definitely in her best interest to ingratiate herself as quickly as possible. So I think that's important to remember. Agreed. I mean, as far as I think people were also had a problem with how quickly she she wasn't very, very reserved um, as far as her interactions with them. She's kind of jumping in with both feet. But but I think she really feels like, you know, if the Voidbringers are going to be coming back, who knows how soon she is feeling this urgent need to get out there and find um, the thing that's going to stop that. I don't disagree with you. I would say that I don't know how effectively Brandon Sanderson is portraying that urgency. 
I mean, that's just what came across to me. Yeah. You know, particularly having the span read conversation come right before this chapter. No, it's a good point. It's it's a good observation. It is. <laughs> of course. Of course, it came from you. Look at the source. <laughs> well, let's talk about the madman. Because for me... That was the most interesting part of the chapter. Absolutely. Absolutely. So she goes in, she sees, we know that this is Talonel because we saw him in the prologue of Way of Kings. So mm-hmm. we, we know that he's real. Okay. But for her, you know, the idea that Dalinar has one of the heralds locked, <laughs> locked in a room is, that's not something she's ready to believe. But I, I thought that for me, the most touching part of this chapter were her and Pattern's discussions about madness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he asks her, what does that mean? And she said, well, it's like when something is is broken in your head. And he says, oh, like a spren that has lost his bond. And she's like, I guess, you know, but she refers to him as madman. And then at the end, when she. She ends up surge binding and he reacts to her by kind of lunging at her and she summons her shard blade. And that's enough to send her into one of her fugue states. And when she comes out of it, Pattern is saying, Shalon, are you mad? And she just says, yes. Yeah. And I thought mm-hmm. that, like, for me, that's, that was a very, that was a feely kind of moment. I was very confused by that, actually, because of the timing at which it happened. I had to read it a few times. So she performs her, her, her thing and pulls Stormlight in, and he attacks her when he notices the illusion around her. Stormlight disappears. She summons her blade. He says, Ishar's knights, and then he drones on and on about something. She asks him a question, dismisses the blade, and it's then that she goes into this catatonic state. Because what the thought that comes into her mind then is mother's soul. Yeah. And again, anytime she thinks about her mother, that's when she loses time okay i also thought it was interesting that her reaction of saying this couldn't actually be one of the heralds right i think it's interesting because it shows how different the alethi's expectation can be from the reality of their metaphysical existences Mm -hmm. so there is this sort of metaphysical world with all these fantastical things going on but they have an expectation of reality that betrays what's actually going on. Yeah. The way in which they walk around surrounded constantly by these spren have no, no real idea what they do or what they're for. Right. Right. But to her mind, she says, you know, the heralds uh, glow like the sun. They wield the honor blades. They speak with the voice of a thousand trumpets. So that's what she's expecting. As far as seeing yep. Harold. Mm-hmm. So do we need to talk about Shamaram? Or is that in this chapter? No, that is not in this chapter. But we'll get, in, we'll get to him later. Chapter 64 is called Treasures. In prison, Kaladin grows darker, both figuratively as his depression sinks in, and literally as his ability to draw stormlight falters. Syl worries about him, even as she begins to revert to her former self. Shallan manages to wreathe herself in darkness, just as Amram walks in. 
He obviously believes that Talon is a herald, and is highly interested in finding his blades. Shallan slips away and sends her report to the Ghostbloods, who officially welcome her to their organization. So is Kaladin just completely oblivious to anything being wrong with Syl at, at this point? Yeah, he's like, oh, she's still very, oh, how childlike she is. Rather than thinking that she is reverting back to. And the, and the fact that he is all of a sudden having trouble drawing drawing Stormlight. Stormlight. Yeah. Like, again, yeah. it's just complete lack of awareness of anything outside of his own cloud of misery. Yeah. Which, again, is very typical of someone with depression. It's not just not very sympathetic. I did think it was interesting that the sequence of events. So he, he tries to draw a stormlight. He can't do it. He prays. And then he is able to. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Syl then speaks to him. And she hasn't in a while. But then she kind of immediately gets distracted and flits off. And it's a very, it's a short little scene with, with Kaladin. And then we kind of jump to Shallan. And that's some good showing, not telling. Right. So that so that's a good, you know, group of beats to kind of demonstrate what's happening to him without telling us outright. I agree. And I think in the next chapter with him, it, it's even better. But so Amaram comes in and he's with someone in the Colleen livery. So he's there, you know, on Dalinar's bequest, trying to figure out what's up with this guy. Obviously, Amaram believes him, you know, and he's like, he's he's just crapping his pants over this and wants to know where the honor blades are. And they go off to try and find them. Yeah, he says, Gavilar, we've done it. We've finally done it. Yes. So that's a very, I think that's an important statement. Yeah, so was it Gavilar's goal to summon a herald to try to find these honor blades? Was it that, you know, in the past we've heard that the heralds arrive to fight against the desolations. Were they attempting to draw them because they felt like the desolations were near? Well, the Parshendi tell us that Gavilar told them he wanted to bring back their gods. So that's another piece of the puzzle, too. Yeah, it's it's strange because we have so many of these when the spren bond to humans is when the Voidbringers come. And when the Voidbringers come is when the Sprens... Like, we have so many chicken and eggs going it's, on. It's interesting because we've been reading the end of Warbreaker and we'll be recording that soon, too. And that's just... Uh, it's a common theme in that book, this idea of the escalation of hostilities mm-hmm. and the the idea that war is inevitable, making war become inevitable. And you see that here played out between these two people. Chapter 65 is called The One Who Deserves It. In the aftermath of the slaughter of Balat's puppies, Shallan and her brothers solidify an escape plan. Shallan binds her stepmother's broken arm, but Melise is far from grateful. Instead, she asks Shallan whether, when she leaves, will her father finally hit her, the one who finally deserves it. We get it. Shallan murdered both her parents. So this chapter, I think, is the first of the flashbacks of Shallan's flashbacks where I was like, okay, 
I get it. Everything's terrible. She's can, it's a blinding light when she goes into the room. This seems like an unnecessary chapter. Mm-hmm. Most of Shalon's flashbacks, I've been like, okay, at least they're not Kaladin flashbacks. <laughs> but they're starting to kind of wear on me. So what I take away from this chapter is, well, first of all, we open up with Shalon reading one of Yasna's books, and it's a book about women in Alethi society and about women having choices, being able to make choices in their lives, uh, being a scholar, being a mother, being both. And Shalon's reaction to that is very interesting because she she is someone who doesn't have any choices. And from her perspective, she sees Yasna as someone who's incredibly privileged, that someone who can just, who's in an environment where you can make any kind of decision about your life. You know, Shalon can't even decide to leave a room without having dire consequences. She just sees that as completely out of touch. And it's interesting because it it just kind of shows you how Shalon got to be the kind of person who was willing to go in and try to rob Yasna before she got to know her. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting contrast to talk about that. And I thought, I mean, that was definitely the the one part of the chapter that I, I did enjoy and think was interesting. Because we've discussed how in this society, although there are definitely highly defined gender roles, there's not as much of a clear-cut patriarchal society as we have. It's still a patriarchal society. Let's not pretend it's not. But more egalitarian than most fantasy novels based on pseudo medieval right. you know types of things. So so we have that sort of contrast but then the other contrast is that you have Yasna talking about female agency and then you really have the two main characters in this chapter are two female characters with who are noble characters from noble families with zero agency. And I think it's interesting that when we first meet Shalon in Way of Kings, she thinks of herself repeatedly as a coward, as someone who's useless, someone who can't do anything. But here we see her taking charge in an extremely dysfunctional situation where all of the adults and older people around her are not coping, are not managing. She is the one who is making a plan to get her family to safety. She is the one who is managing her father, you know. So it's interesting for me, the contrast between who a person is and how they view their self. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shalon is a really interesting character to me in that regard. You know, we've always kind of assumed that, okay, she started out as this protected, you know, inexperienced kind of naive girl and she's grown into a powerful woman, but we see that that's not necessarily the case. You know, she is was actually a child who was expected to deal with very intense adult circumstances, but who kind of thought of herself, though, in that way as part of the, the persona that she crafted to cope with life. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I just think that's very interesting. So another interesting thing, too, is what Melise says about Shalon's father. She talks about the darkness inside of him, uh, the beast be- behind his eyes. And 
it's very subtle, but it to me, it almost sounds like that might not be a metaphor. You know, we know in this case that there are, well, there's personifications of emotion running around all over the place. Mm-hmm. So it's just something that's interesting to pay attention to. Well, and we know that humans can bond to spren, and we know that spren fall into categories that line up with the gods. Honor, cultivation, odium. And there's uh, the odiums, you know, the kind of darkness spren group of spren. We know that like storm spren can, through that ceremony, bond with the Parshendi, hence making them storm form. There's nothing that's been said one way or the other about whether or not humans can bond. Humans can bond with those spren. Don't know. I don't know. I mean, Chapter 66 is called Storm Blessings. Kaladin is released from prison, to his surprise. Even more surprisingly, he discovers that Adolin has been locked up as well, at his own insistence. This was the disturbance that Kaladin heard early in his confinement. And the surprises keep on coming. A full set of shards await Kaladin in the prison lobby, courtesy of the Colleen family. Kaladin astounds everyone except the readers by declining the honor and giving the shards to Moash. He tells Moash that he is down with the plan to 86 Elokar. Here we go. Classic Kaladin. Dummy. We start off with Kaladin still in prison. And for me, this was the best description or depiction of depression and that kind of depressive mindset that I've seen in the books as as much as we've described Kaladin's depression, you know, and it was more just kind of describing Kaladin's thought process and that he's gotten to the point where he's, he's almost decided like that, that kind of disease in his mind is telling him that really everyone's better off without him. He really wasn't important to anyone, even his crew, they're all probably better off without him. And that, for me, that was very kind of relatable and, uh, and a well done. It made me feel sympathy for him. I just thought that was a good good depiction. Yeah, he's going a little bit feral. Right. Well, I think it's interesting too, and I think we're meant to all of the stuff about him wanting to die under the wind, the idea of dying inside mm-hmm. being the worst possible thing. I think that's significant because he is a wind runner. I think that we don't haven't seen a lot of the radiance, but for him, I think his powers have kind of changed or brought out parts of his personality that for that being confined is harder for him than it would be for other people because of his status as a wind runner. Makes sense. So I also really liked that Adolin's show of humility um, causes Kaladin to finally apologize. Like when he comes out yeah. and sees that yeah, Adolin yeah, yeah. has been, I mean, and yeah, he's had baths and he's wearing cologne and he's had, you know, but he didn't visitors shave. and stuff, but he still locked himself up for three weeks. I mean, it's like the worst YouTube 24 hour challenge <laughs> ever. Right. I'm going to spend three weeks in this cell, cross the hall from this other guy in this cell. I mean, I'm going to have parties, but I will stay in the cell. I mean, it's like it's like the kids who are like, 
YouTube challenge. I'm going to spend 24 hours in my room and my mom's just going to have to come up here 18 times an hour to bring me stuff. Our kids are like, mom, I want to do a 20. And I'm like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) mm-mm. Hire a maid. Yeah. I said, you can do 24 hours in the kitchen. 24 hours in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> now, the part where the part with Adolin and Kaladin was a highlight of this section for sure. And Adolin believes Kaladin about Amaram. Also, which is kind of cool. Also cool. So that part was good. And then, as you said, Kaladin seems to, and I think that's what makes the end of this chapter so frustrating, is that Kaladin seems to, when he sees Adolin, and he recognizes, because he already respects Dalinar, and he's he didn't really judge Dalinar too harshly for his sort of blasé comments about Rashon. He says, Dalinar's a good man. Mm-hmm. It's Elikar that's the problem. Right. He's, he's all... All camp Dalinar all day long. Hates Adolin. Because he and Syl have a conversation mm-hmm. about recognizing pattern. Right. And she says, hey, you may not be alone soon. There may be other people who are being bonded to Spren. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, God, please don't let it be Adolin. <laughs> right. Right. But when he sees Adolin and they talk... He goes through this whole apology. He seems to really be coming kind of up out of it. And he has a rare moment of introspection and understanding. Adolin says to him in a way that I thought was fairly kind, I suspect that the duels are more formalized than you would ever realize. And why would you realize? So I'm sure you didn't understand why what you were doing was stupid. Mm-hmm. I get it. You know, and I'm like, ah, this is this is going well, which is why what he does at the end of the chapter, I think, is is so much harder to take. It is. And it's it's hard because he does it for the right for the almost the right reasons, but he does the wrong thing because I really like what he says. So he comes out and Adolin's like, here's all your shard plate. And Kaladin's like, is it really mine? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, okay, then I'm giving it to Moash. And Adolin's like, whoa, 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 what? And Kaladin says, I I don't, you know, Adolin says, this is going to make your life change. And Kaladin says, I don't want my life to change because I've become a light eyes. I want the lives of people like me, like I am now to change. And I'm like, well, that's cool. But he gives it to Moash, who he knows is going to use it to kill, to the, kill king. the king. Now, right, exactly. yes, he wants the king to be killed. Okay, sure. But he's not, it's almost like he's doing it so that he can't change his mind about that. Yeah. You know, and what he tells Adolin is, oh, hey, you know, I can already fight a shard bear <laughs> without the shard plate. So really giving it to one of my men is going to make everyone safer, but he could have given it to Teft yeah. or any of the other guys. Mm-hmm. He gives it to the one guy that he knows is actively plotting to kill the King. Also, I don't, so this is the second time this dude's been offered a shard blade. Yes. And the second time he said, so is it really mine? Really? 
No take backsies? <laughs> All right, I'm going to give it to somebody else. Without thinking, maybe technically that may be true, but it's insulting. Right. You know, to be, you know, I'm going to give you this new car. Is it really my car? Okay, I'm going to give it to Joe. You know, that's to do that right in front of somebody is really alien. It's alienating to Mm -hmm. them. It's an asshole thing to do. I, I sort of get why he does it, but it's, it's interesting to me that he doesn't recognize how incredibly off-putting that is. He didn't have to do that. He could have simply said said to, you know, pulled Adolin to the side and said, I recognize what you're trying to do. It's an incredible honor. However, for all the reasons they stated, too many of my friends have died at the hands of these. I can't I can't touch or be involved in them. It's just not something I can do. Declined the gift and not been like, is it mine? Is it really mine? No take backs. He's okay. I'm giving it to this guy. You know, there's no subtlety there in what he's doing. He's not winning friends. Well, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And then, so they go off and they're going to party. He pulls Moash to the side. I agree with you. The king needs to die. But not the way you're thinking. You're doing it for revenge. You can't. That's the wrong attitude to have. Now, where's Amaram so I can gloat? <laughs> How dare he lecture Moash about revenge? Right. Right. You know, and he comes up this this chapter. He comes up out of the prison. You know, he literally comes out into the light it seems like he's making these realizations, and then at the end of the chapter, he just right back into that shit darkness funk that he's been living in, which is realistic because I don't think you, I don't think one monumental event snaps you out of it. Mm-hmm. Still frustrating to read, though. Mm-hmm. Chapter sixty-seven is called "Spit and Bile." Dalinar and Navani attend a feast. The gossip and snickering behind Dalinar's back seems to have increased, and it doesn't take long to figure out why. Sadius has managed to get a hold of Navani's transcripts of Dalinar's visions, and he has published them, putting a mocking twist on the story. Rather than reacting with embarrassment, Dalinar owns his visions, jumping on the table and telling all those mofos to say it to his face. <laughs> Afterwards, Dalinar asks Wit whether or not he is a tyrant. Wit affirms that he is, but that he might be the perfect tyrant to defeat the real bad guy, the father of hatred. I thought it was Randy Macho Man Savage. Right? (laughs) So let's start off with the conversation that Dalinar has with Navani as they're walking to this feast. Because there's some interesting stuff. Navani is like, like they're walking. Well, first of all, okay, so they're walking and Dalinar's like, Oh, Navani's so pretty, and she's so her voice is so soothing when she blah blah blahs about all her sciency stuff, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to pay attention to what she's saying. <laughs> but so, but what Navani's telling him is that they have found that the gemstones in the shard blades weren't always there, and that the radiance didn't need the gemstones to summon the shard blades. 
So that's like pretty cool. And what struck me is that for someone who says that he wants to refound the Knights Radiant, Dalinar can't even pay a lick of attention no. to what sounds like some pretty inform- important information about what the Knights Radiant could do. Also, he's not... I mean, I get that he hasn't been trained in this way of thinking, but he's like, that doesn't sound like it's helpful at all. She's like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> it's like a whole piece. It's like a whole piece of evidence which closes off one whole hypothesis. Mm-hmm. You can't see how that could potentially. Okay, never. <laughs> yeah. just go eat your goddamn food. <laughs> eat your goddamn spicy tallow. Spicy tallow. The other thing I thought was interesting about that conversation is that she asks Dalinar not to despise the other high princes. And she tells him, you're not going to win or change them with contempt. And I just thought that was an interesting echo of his advice to Kaladin. Right. About, you know, just doing the right thing and being the best person you can be as a way to change people. So then we have the Reynolds pamphlet. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a good comparison. I hadn't thought about that. So I just thought it was pretty cool how Sadius pulled what he just thought was like a master move, like like Dalinar is just going to run from the feast weeping and throw himself on the couch, you know, and Dalinar is just like, yeah, what? What? I have visions. I'm just sitting here enjoying the fruit of your oh, suffering. Yeah, that, that part was pretty bad. I'm just here feasting. <laughs> feasting my eye on your discontent. <laughs> what I thought was interesting is that uh is that Sadius says I thought his attacks would be physical. I'm like have you been paying any attention? Right. <laughs> That's not how, like... Yeah. Did you think he was going to arm wrestle you? <laughs> Play a vicious game of tummy sticks? Like, <laughs> no, that's not That's not how he does things, you asshole. But Sadius is one insidious fucker, though. I mean, I get that this didn't really work. I think Dalinar... Well, we'll see whether or not it worked, but... Mm-hmm. I think Dalinar did the best he could do yeah. in the circumstances, but it was still a very shrewd move. Absolutely. Relatively minimal effort or risk to compl- potentially completely discredit Dalinar. The thing that was frustrating a, a little bit about this chapter, though, is this is a long chapter. And I'm sure the information about the Shardblades in the beginning is going to be relevant to something. I don't know what it's going to be relevant to, but I'm, I'm sure it's going to be relevant to something. Mm-hmm. But there's all that stuff that happens after Dalinar stands on the table where he's talking with the other High Lords and people, and it, it gets like a paragraph of description, and that's where I feel like I would have liked to spend a little more time. Like, what were your conversations with all the other High Princes like? After you told them, hey, 11 days from now, I'll be proved right, and you fuckers will be dead. <laughs> like, or I'll be proved wrong, and you can go on you know, with your stupid feast. You mm-hmm. know? 
what was the result of that? And we don't really get that. Mm -hmm. Not at this point. No, so that's a little frustrating. One other question I have. So he has this conversation with Amaram, who just continues to be insufferable. But Delinar asks him outright, how did your conversation with the Herald go? And Amaram says, I'm still investigating. Now, we know that Amaram talked to him. We know that he... They have some information about where the Honor Blades are. So Amaram feels as though he's making some sort of headway here. But the question I have is, did Amaram lie to Dalinar? Was he withholding information from Dalinar? Or is that what Dalinar asked him to do? And I don't think that's clear at this point. You're right. It's not clear. And we know that Amaram is not what he seems to be. But we don't know how much Dalinar believes that he is. Yeah. I well, thought it was interesting that Wit seemed to dislike Amram more than he did Sadius. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. It's also interesting to me at this point, this is kind of the first time I've thought about this, but that Amram seems to know more about what Gavilar was trying to do than Dalinar does. Gavilar, when he's about to die, says he blames his assassination on Thetakar, who we believe is one of the uppity-ups of the Ghostbloods, right. who Mireille's reports to, or Rastaris, which is who we believe Amaram reports to. Rastaris is one of the other high princes, correct? Or do we not yes. know? Yes, yes. Okay. So he's another high prince here on the Shattered Plains. We don't have any contact with. Amaram seems to be loyal to to him, so it seems like we have two high high princes who understood what Gavilar was trying to do. Dalinar doesn't. So it's just interesting how that dynamic is not immediately obvious. And there are a lot of people here on the Shattered Plains who know a lot more about what's going on than any of us do. There's a lot of ins, a lot of outs. A lot of strands in the old duder's head. Exactly. So I also love the conversation at the end that Wit has with Dalinar. Yeah. And I love that Dalinar finally just, he recognizes that there's something different about Wit. And, you know, this whole time, Wit's obviously... Saying, look at me, look at yes, me. Look, knows, some, knows things, okay? And, he, and he's not making a huge secret of it. And people are just kind of like, oh, Wit, you're, we don't have time for your nonsense you know, and Dalinar finally acknowledges and is like, are, are you one of the, her- what are you? You know, are you yeah, a herald? Yeah. Are you a radiant? So that was kind of gratifying that, you know, he's not as oblivious as Are he- you some kind of freak, man? So I thought that was kind of cool. And I, I thought it was kind of heartbreaking when he asks him, am I a tyrant? Yeah. Because that's not what he wants to be, but it is also a little bit what he wants to be. If only because he wants to like drop kick all the other high princes into <laughs> some semblance of adult like responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that wit at the end says, you know, in another time I might have denounced you with spit and bile, but now you're exactly what this world needs, and you might be the only one who can fight him. And Dalinar says, "Who? There's someone else I have to fight." Uh, I'm not going to tell you who you have to fight. The father of hatred. 
Exactly. I mean, obviously that's a baddie. Obviously that's a level 10 baddie. (laughs) Well, if, uh, if Odium catches wit, he's going to break his soul into shards that cannot be reassembled. Not sound fun. Doesn't sound good at all. He will cease to exist like the monster from the never ending story, like Balefire. Yeah. Oh, nice. Bring out the wheel of time. Ooh, no spoilers. Fun. No spoilers. All right. So that ends our coverage for this week of the chapters. Would you like to talk about some listener interactions before we get into your predictions? Absolutely. Theogram Brown says, question number one is multiple choice. Get your scantrons ready. Sharpen up your number two pencil. Theo says, you infiltrate an evil society with a flawless disguise, but they try to kill you. Do you, A, give it all up as a bad job and try to keep your head down? B, contact them to meet up and then follow their members back to their lair where they have an advantage? Or C, go up to the person they send and say, hey, man, what's up? You want to hang? Obviously, I got, see. I mean, we've already discussed yeah, this. I got this Proclaimers album. <laughs> Nobody to listen to it with. Da, da, da. <laughs> got my first real six string over at the five and dime. No, I mean, we talked about this a little bit already. Uh, in my opinion, Shalon's desire to continue uh, Yasna's work is going to drive her to not play it safe when it comes to the ghost bloods. Yeah, I don't, uh, I'm not as upset about her willing to continue to engage with them. If, if she had gone back to another remote and isolated area with them and put herself at their advantage, Mm -hmm. if she had just walked up to the tree... Right. You know, right. then I would have definitely had a problem with the way she was behaving. I get that she's obsessed and she's going to continue down this road. And I think she was taking more than reasonable precautions so that she didn't get caught in the same scenario. So I don't I don't have a problem with it with that so much. To me, it's the. It's the. um it's just the cartoonishness of these bad guys. <laughs> they really just, it's like, they're like Scooby-Doo villains. You know, but anyway, question number two from Theo Graham Brown, also multiple choice. You are an evil secret society. Someone kills one of your agents, covers it up, and then tries to get into your organization and escapes your attempts to track her or kill her. Then she gets back in touch. Do you? A, arrange to meet her and then kill her when she shows up. B, arrange for her to do a worthless test job where you watch her every step of the way, maybe kill her anyway. C, arrange for her to do an important mission for you and send along your mom's chatty bridge club mate (laughs) with a mask and a big knife to keep a vague eye on her. If you got mostly C's, you are in a Brandon Sanderson novel. I mean, I, I, do you want to answer it? 
I don't think we need to. I, I think I've I've harped enough on Brandon Sanderson this episode. I don't feel the need to continue beating the man up. And and I feel like I gave my opinion, which is that I feel like the narrative works. You know, I will say that I do think that this job was not a crucial job for the Ghostbloods. I think they were kind of sending her on a test mission. Obviously, they aren't expecting someone who has uh, magical disguise abilities. So any person who didn't have Shalon's powers would have been, would have not been able to do what they set her out to do. At least not as quickly and, and as easily, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I also think that Tin's association with the Ghost Bloods was pretty tenuous to begin with. I don't think killing her really hurt Shalon in their eyes at all. And her ability to magically break into places and instantly like photocopy with her brain anything she sees, that's pretty valuable. Oh, if you're yeah. A, if you're a cabal... <laughs> If you're a shifty cabal, that's like well, prime yeah. membership material. Well, and the main thing that they seem to be trying to do at this point, I'm sure it's not the only thing they're trying to do, but the main thing we see them trying to do is sort of figure out what everybody else is trying to do. They're trying to see how everyone else has laid out the right. chessboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So having somebody who can do that for you, agreed, uber useful. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that they would be courting her. Theo Graham Brown also says, Kaladin gets the whole Elicar thing explained and seems like his response is, oh, well, we should kill Elicar. I mean, did you do a bit of a wait, what at that? Kaladin is definitely making the worst of choices here, isn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think we, we talked about that yeah, absolutely. in the episode and agreed. Poor choices. Take some responsibility, man. Do we take Adolin's whole brother from another mother act with Kaladin at face value? I mean, Adolin being there to greet him, giving him the shards, yeah, but putting himself in jail and then giving it the whole, that Elicar, eh? What a wanker. It seemed too much what he wanted to hear to me. First of all, I, we just had to point out that the, the use of the word wanker, thank you, I appreciate that. Any British slang, you know, I'm a sucker for it. And the British spelling of jail. You clearly spelled jail wrong. Love it. No, he spelled it perfectly. <laughs> so, a any thoughts on that? There's definitely some back and forth quite a bit. Well, there's quite a bit of back and forth on the Facebook group page. If if you all haven't checked that one yet, of people's opinions on that. But do you have a take on it? I don't think Adolin is being disingenuous in any way. I think... I think Adolin is pretty much what you see of him on the on the face of it all. Like, and he seems to be the only one reacting appropriately to the fact that Kaladin jumped into an arena with, you know, three shard bearers armed with a stick. You know, like, yeah. he seems to be the only one that's like, you know, giving him the props, and that that's why. And that not only that, but he, um, you know, defended Renarin, who is the most important person in the world to Adolin, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think that Adolin is trying to to pull any deep psychological switcheroos on Kaladin to get him to mm -hmm. admit to anything. I don't think his game is that good. Theo Graham Brown also says, one thing that struck me, we know Elicar is hearing, seeing a spren, or it seems that way. How is this going to play out? Is he actually going to pull a big Knight's Radiant thing out and stop an assassination? 
I, I don't know. That's a little intriguing to me as well because we've known for a long time that Elicar is seeing Spren at the same sort of pace that Shallan did. Mm-hmm. But unlike everybody else we've seen in this scenario, mm-hmm. we have no idea what's happening with Elicar. We don't know if he is has bonded with a spren, is talking to him, realizes what's going on, is just keeping it secret, or if he, you know, he he doesn't seem to be continuing to like hide in the shadows all the time. Mm-hmm. So it leads me to believe that he's not still totally unaware, but but we just have no idea with him, mm-hmm. which is a little strange because, well, well, maybe it's not. Because although we know what's going on with these other characters, it's only because we're in their heads and in their perspective. To everybody else, it's completely a secret. So mm-hmm. it's not shocking that whatever's going on with Elicar would also be completely a secret. Mm-hmm. I hope it's useful. It's. I wonder, you know, he said, um, you know, is that going to help him stop an assassination? That's an interesting point. I mean... You know, we have characters now who have professed that they're going to go after him. You know, maybe he has like a paranoia friend that he's bonded with and it's going to give him a thousand sets of eyes, Mm -hmm. you know, in the spiritual realm and no one's ever going to be able to sneak up on him. (laughs) It's interesting because we know that at the fight, Syl saw a cryptic. Um, and said, oh, it, uh, there was a cryptic there. It was looking for someone. And I think, you know, we talked about the assumption that, oh, she had seen pattern, but I wonder if she saw a spren that was hovering around Elagar. Could be because it seemed like her, uh, Shalon, that is, Shalon's sort of exposure to the cryptics and the way she reacted was very similar to Elicar and his paranoia. Right. That he was seeing something very similar. Well, yeah, he talked about um, seeing creatures with twisted symbols yeah, for so, faces. Yeah, yeah. So, so it would be likely that he would have the same thing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the artistic ability right. that she has. So it'll be interesting to see if, she, if he can also project light in the same way how will it manifest itself? Mm-hmm. Eric Allgaier says, if Elicar is one of those radiants in training, is darkness coming for him? How's he going to kill him lawfully if Elicar is the law? What are you going to do now, darkness? I don't, I, it's going to respect his authority. I'm going to respect it. That's right. What else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Darkness. So Theogram Brown, oh, he has actually a couple of predictions that we're not going to read in case they color your predictions. Well, uh, my predictions are already written down, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. So first, um, he says that he thinks that Yasna is Iatil. Is that one of yours? All right, so I'll give you a sneak peek on my previews or on my predictions. All right. I have two legitimate predictions, Mm -hmm. and I have two, please, God, don't let this be true predictions. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, please, dear God, don't let this be true predictions. 
Okay, and his second prediction is, he says, okay, it's a biggie, but is Adolin responsible for the guys trying to kill Elokar? If this was a different novel than when he gives Kaladin the whole, Elokar's a dumbass thing, Cal would be like, yo, dog, are you wearing a wire? (laughs) But maybe he said that because he is actively trying to get his dad into the position of king. Who knows? Okay, Brian McClure says, any thoughts on Yatil? I think we covered her pretty well yeah i have i have many opinions he also says what do you think are amaram's plans for the honor blades i think he's gonna chop stuff with them fly around lash things to the sea what would you do with an honor blade i do all kinds of shit i would never be stuck in traffic (laughs) damn straight (laughs) I mean, getting to work in the morning would be a lot easier. I could spend like an extra 15 minutes sitting around. (laughs) I'm saying it would change my life. It would definitely change my life. I mean, unless an honor blade starts doing laundry, I don't even know that I'd find one that useful. (laughs) I I don't know that they know what honor blades are capable of. You know, they probably just think of them as being sort of super shards. We don't know. Amram might know that. He might not. He may. He may not. He may think that if he can find the honor blades, then he can summon the heralds themselves. Or mm-hmm. uh, who knows what he might he might think they are. But I think more to the point, what Amram is trying to do, he doesn't really need to know what they do. Right. He just wants to be the one who's in control of them. So nobody else gets them. Right. Uh, Brian McClure asks, what are your thoughts on the mission that the Ghostbloods gave Shallan? Do you think it makes sense for them to use the mission to test her, or would it make more sense to use a more senior operative for this mission? And he also says, do you think that the Ghostbloods are done testing Shallan? I don't think anybody outside of Dalinar and Amaram is aware that this madman is actually Harold. I think everybody else is just finds it curious. Right that this guy gets trucked in from afar and Amaram and Dalinar seem to be paying attention. I don't think they have any idea who it is. So I I don't think it would appear to them to be something of, you know, extreme importance. It's just, here's something out of the ordinary. We should investigate it. Why not use somebody who is not affiliated with you? By the way, the whole having a tattoo thing is fucking dumb. <laughs> in my opinion, because when you get caught, oh, we found four of these assholes hanging out and they all had the same tattoo. Like, round everybody up and check them for tattoos. Like, right. I mean, you know, it seems silly. So to me, having somebody who has that tattoo running around doing anything of importance seems like a bad idea. Right. So, no, I don't think it makes more sense to send uh, a more senior or trusted operative. That that doesn't bother me at all. I, I don't know if they're done testing her or not. It does seem strange to me that it's like they clearly don't. They know she is extremely useful to them, but they don't have any idea how she's doing anything. They don't know anything about her. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you're one of us now, kid. You know, that part to me seems a little bit strange Mm -hmm. that they're, you know, her initiation is so quick. 
Well, I I agree with you provisionally on that. I, I, I do understand why they would want to snap her up again. They're like a, a sketchy covert organization. She's basically like a perfect spy agent. Yeah. Um. On the other hand, they haven't even attempted to lay out their objectives to her in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And they kind of expect her to just go along with it. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that being said, she has overtly expressed interest in joining their organization several times. Yeah. And wanting to move up and find the truth about things. So I guess they could maybe accept her at face value as just a, an opportunistic criminal who, you know once in with the right sort of people. I mean, I, I've never been involved in a secret cult slash cabal. So I'm not sure what their HR practices entail. You don't get like a welcome pamphlet. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, is there a handbook, a manual? You know, I don't know what their recruiting practices look like. I don't know what their KBIs are that they're <laughs> trying to hit. You know, I haven't had a strategy discussion with them. So, uh, you know, it's hard It's hard for me to say. Brian McClure says, what are your thoughts on the conversation at the end of Chapter 67? I think we talked about that a little bit already uh, with Wit and Dalinar. Um, he also says, there was a lot of talk in Chapter 67 of the future of Fabrials. Do you think we will see a more high-tech society on Roshar, leader in the books, maybe something even up to and surpassing the Industrial Age? I, I think that's a cool question. I think that is. that is something that Brandon Sanderson has done with another of his series uh, where he had well his uh, one of his main original trilogies is called Mistborn. And he wrote a second trilogy set in the same on the same world with the same magic system. But, you know, many, many, many hundreds of years after. So it was sort of a medieval technology in the first trilogy. And then the the next one had sort of a, a Victorian like steampunk kind of flair, and that was pretty cool. I've never heard of an yeah. author doing anything like that before. Yeah, yeah. And then I I heard he had plans to do a third trilogy where it's like spaceships and stuff, and I'm pretty excited about that. So listen, if Stormlight doesn't end with the Great Space Coaster, then I don't really want to hear it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think that's a really interesting concept and I, I would, I would love to see that. I love, you know, that's one of the things I, I just recently started reading some, um, like Flintlock fantasy, the powder mage series. And what I really like about that is how it explores, you know, technology and progress and what that does to a society and what would that look like in a society that has magic. Um, so I, I think that would be cool. Susan King says, Remember that Navani said the gemstones were not originally on the shard blades and that the gemstones were how they bonded. So could the stash be of unbonded shard blades? Well, I think it's an interesting question because there's a presumption that it's honor blades and... Because Amaram says, oh, the it's the honor blades. Uh, c- right. Correct. So so they make that assumption, but but who's to say that's what it is? Right. We so I went back because I was curious about this. So I went back and I reread the prelude 
to a way of kings again, you know, paying attention to the conversation between the heralds and the and the swords and and all of that. If if you're to believe that what he's talking about are the honor blades, then the nine heralds, uh, everybody other than Talonel, you know, drove them into this spot at what looks like the base of Urethiru and essentially walked away. However, we know for a fact at least one of them is floating around, and that is with Seth, and we believe a, a second one is with Darkness, who may very well be another one of the Heralds. We really don't know. But there's no—I mean, if they were there, there's no guarantee. I mean, the Heralds just walked away. Mm-hmm. They could have all— came back and got their honor blade if they wanted to. There's no guarantee they're still there or all right. of them are still there. I kind of, ex- uh, you know, I asked the question last time, what did Seth see? What did Seth find? Mm-hmm. You know, I almost kind of wonder if he didn't wander into an oath gate and come out the other side at Eurythiru and found one of the honor blades. And that's what why he has it and why he thought that this whole thing was going to happen again. You know, and his taking that honor blade, not being a herald, could be the thing that kicked all this off. Mm-hmm. D- don't really know, just something to think about. Something to think about. All right, last question. Samuel Denberg says, uh, Wit says, I have discovered a place that I must be, though to be honest, I'm not exactly sure why I need to be there. This doesn't always work as well as I'd like to. Tinfoil hat time. What doesn't always work? Is there something or someone guiding Wit? If so, who or what? It's a very interesting question. Yeah, and I think that gets into sort of the greater Cosmere mystery which may be a little outside the scope of what we can handle here inside of this series, but still fun to speculate. You know, if oath gates exist on Roshar and great space coasters don't, then it stands to reason that the way these cosmonauts bounce from planet to planet is probably not in a giant spaceship. So it's probably something magical. If oath gates exist, why wouldn't something like that exist that can take you to the different planets in the Cosmere? Mm-hmm. Or some other sort of magic that transports you. Mm-hmm. And maybe you think you're going to go to the land of Mistborn and you land up in the land of, you know, in Halandrin or I can't think of the name of the city. You know, you end up in the world of Warbreaker instead. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what he means. Yeah. Don't know. It is an interesting question as well is, is there someone or something guiding Wit? Because we have what we believe are three different gods here on Roshar. We don't know if those are gods in the sort of universal sense throughout the Cosmere, but we have these letters that tell us that there are these beings who have some sort of greater sense of what's going on across the Cosmere. Mm -hmm. And these sort of cosmonauts who are traveling from planet to planet seem to have that as well. 
So it does sort of seem like there's a good guy, bad guy, cosmonaut contingent. Mm-hmm. You know, what what that all means, I, I don't know. All right, time for predictions. I just don't know. All right. I have predictions. I have two legitimate predictions. And I have two, oh, God, please don't let this be what's happening predictions. Okay. So first, my real predictions. So I I believe I said this a few chapters into Way of Kings or a few episodes in that I felt like the souls of all these people killed by shard blades are going to add up to something. Like, it's not for nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm at the point where I'm beginning to think that Odium is turning souls into shards or turning them into stormlight or turning them like he's powering things through like people's deaths. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it is destroying Roshar itself, killing cultivation and covering the continent in creme. Mm. Like I, to me, the fact that the planet is so messed up and ugly and arid and covered in like just non-living, like shale bark is considered vegetate, like, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that the planet is so messed up and alien and backwards to me, I think is because of odium and cultivation and a, a battle between them. So that's a very clear prediction. Okay. And my other is that I do think the Honor Blades are in Eurothero. Now, could have also said they're in Narok because it, but I'm basing that off of that initial prelude in Way of Kings where they left their swords. Mm-hmm. They talked about this spire that reached up into the sky, mm-hmm. which leads me to believe that it's the tower at Eurothero, mm-hmm. not the one at Narok, mm-hmm. which is a tower, but it's clearly not reaching up into the sky in the same way right. the Eurothero is. I think a lot of people think are going to think that's where it is, but that's not where they're going to be. All right, now on to my predictions. So t- so two things occurred to me reading this, both of which I was like, oh, dear God, please don't let this be true. Mm-hmm. The first was, holy crap, this mask face lady better not be Yasna. Mm-hmm. Please, God, don't let this mask face lady be Yasna. Mm-hmm. I don't really think it is, mm-hmm. but it crossed my mind that that could be something that Brandon Sanderson does. We know Yasna's not dead because she's on the cover of the next book. Kind of a giveaway. I didn't think about that. <laughs> makes it kind of hard to... Makes it kind of hard to think she's legitimately dead. All right, my second is I think Kaladin might be setting Moash up 
to draw out the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Now, the evidence against that is the fact that he gave him shard blade and shard plate. Yes. If you were going to do that, you would think you would not equip right. somebody with it. Uh, so again, I don't really think this is true, but it just sort of smacks to me of the whole trust Sadius thing that happened in the last book. Right. You know, building up a, a direction so you can create misdirection towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. I really hope that's not what's going on, and I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. Please, dear God, tell me that's not what it is. Do you really want me to tell you that's not what it is? You have to read and find out. Ah, damn it. There's not that much more. Damn it. I really hope that's not what's going on there. So those We're are like my... 200 pages from the end of the book. Just 200 pages. It's like nothing. It's like a month. It is like a month. It's like a month. All right. That's all I got. That's all our <laughs> predictions. It is. Um, that's all our interactions. Um, we do want to bring up one more time, and we're just going to keep telling everyone about our 100th episode plans to record live at Balticon. That is going to be happening on May 25th in Baltimore, Charm City, Maryland. If you are within driving distance... Flying distance, hopping distance. Get your butt to Baltimore and eat some crab cakes. But to Balticon, eat some crab cakes, drink some Natty Bows. Natty Bows, Han. And Going come meet us at Balticon. See the Orioles. We will be uh, hosting a tinfoil hat theory uh, panel on the King Killer Chronicles. And uh, it's going to be a really good time. Yeah, and we like got rid of the kids for like a whole twenty four hours. So twenty four hours of talking about nerd stuff and probably sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> but it's gonna be awesome. But at least twelve of those hours we will be awake. <laughs> All right, you can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast dot com. You can find us on Twitter at the D and D Podcast, on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Please join our Facebook group page. If you have not joined our Facebook group page... And what the hell are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Come join us. Hang out with us. Have a good time. Uh, you can find the group page on facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the DND group. Find us on all the social medias, at least the ones we know about. At Instagram, Goodreads, Reddit, etc. Good night, everybody. Good night. Get on board on the Great Space Coaster. We'll explore a comic ride of fantasy to a place where dreams fly fast and free. With new friends and new things to see. We'll spin you through the galaxy on the Great Space Coaster. Oh, on the Great Space Coaster. Off we go. Coaster. Oh, 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 on the great space coaster, on the great space coaster.
Stand. Off we go.